This evening I'd like to offer some reflections on the on what it means to trust in being. We can feel quite strongly, deeply drawn in our hearts to seek for stillness, for peace, to come to rest in a deep and profound way. And yet what we notice, what we can often experience and encounter when we enter into a retreat, which is a situation intended and designed very much to be supportive for that process. What we can notice, what we can feel, is that while at some level we are drawn towards a sense of stillness, calm, peacefulness, or we think we are at least, at another level what becomes obvious and quite apparent, or may in fact do so, is that it's really not that comfortable for us to give up all the things that we're busy with doing that keep us from that sense of calm, rest, peace, stillness. It's not easy for us to let go. And so one of the aspects of this journey is understanding reflecting upon and seeing in our own experience how it is that we feel compelled to keep engaging in activity and how challenging it is for us to relinquish that compulsion. And so we need to learn what it means to be, to trust in being. And equally, what it means to abide in non-doing. Now, although this may in some ways sound attractive, it's, as I said, remarkably challenging to us. We have a very deep sense or deep pull within us to engage in Activity to engage in some form of action or engagement driven or moved or directed towards producing a result. And this, this is something we can see pretty much everywhere we look. When we start to reflect on our experience and our lives, we can equally see it in the experience and practice of meditation. That there's a there's a way in which we're we, it's like we have the need to be doing something. Put simply, we have the need. It seems to be doing something, and doing something involves an activity in which there's a result that is in somehow something that we can measure, somehow that we can analyze and measure and compare between one result and the other. And when we have got something that we can measure or evaluate and therefore make comparisons between the different results that we achieve or produce, we have a sense of the possibility of improvement, 
development, growth, getting somewhere. And, of course, at the same time, we are confronted with the risk of failing, of blowing it, of getting nowhere, turning out to be, as we possibly always suspected, quite hopeless at this and maybe other things too. So this this territory of success and failure we can see is one that's ingrained into how we tend to look at most things. Not always, perhaps, but often it's there, colouring how we're relating to, how we're perceiving, and how we're experiencing what's going on, and how we're giving value to, or withholding the giving of, or the recognising of value in our experience. And we can see that often what we're doing is trying to somehow set or establish or maintain for ourselves some sense that we're okay, some sense that we're of value, that we're worthy, that we're the sense of sometimes described as self-worth, where, where we feel, as we, as we yearn to feel, a, a really clear sense of, yes, something really of value here in my being or in my doing. And it tends to be in the doing that we look for that, to be accepted or to be valued by others. It tends to be dependent upon whether we produce for those others the results that they would like us to produce, if we turn up in the way they would like us to turn up, achieve the things that we that they would like us to achieve. And much the same with ourselves, turning up the way we would like ourselves to turn up, achieving the things we would like ourselves to achieve, seems to give rise in us to a sense of being able to feel good about ourselves. And it's like sometimes we're, we're in a situation where we're really hoping to be able to give ourselves a pat on the back for a good meditation. You know, at the end, it's not just that a good meditation is nice, but that at the end of it we can say, ah, oh, I did well, great. And at the same time, a meditation which feels a bit more sort of all over the place, part of what's going on is not that being all over the place is actually that bad. I mean, we've been doing it much of our lives. It's, and we've got pretty well along with it. It's the sense that goes with it of, oh, actually I can't do it, I'm failing, I'm hopeless, I'm no good good at this. And that sense of undermining and the, the deep painfulness that comes with that, with that habit, with that tendency. And what this points out, what this tends to show to us as we reflect on it, as we contemplate it, is that we have established the habit or come to the position of determining our value on the basis of our activities, what we do, what we produce, what we don't produce. And therefore we are constantly trying to somehow give ourselves the results we feel we need or deserve to feel okay about ourselves. And yet what we notice is that in that process, sometimes we're able to do it. You know, Some days I can be a good meditator and then I can feel good. And yet some days I'm just falling asleep and it turns out I'm not a good meditator. And what a disappointment after all this work, all this effort. So 
to see that the judgments that come, that kind of weigh upon our heart, are something deeply painful. And that we, we recognize at some level that they're not true, which is why we often fight and struggle with that pattern or tendency. Because something in our heart knows that what it says to us and the undermining, devaluing or negating isn't actually the truth of our life. And yet so far as we're believing that that value is based on some kind of performance that we have to attain, but which we're not always able to, then we're caught in this dynamic, we're caught in this painful pattern. And so what would it be to contemplate disengaging that sense of value or that sense of goodness, worthiness, or even just a sense of doing okay, to disengage that from anything that we're measuring or trying to perform here. And measuring inevitably gives rise to the need and the attempt to perform. There's a rather illuminating story with regard to this that uh, I heard um, a conversation taking place on a retreat being taught in California quite some years ago now. Um, one of the teachers was Jack Cornfield, who's one of the one of the senior sort of teachers in the insight meditation lineage, and. Uh, he came into the staff dining room during the retreat one afternoon, several days in. And one of the one of the cooks there asked Jack, he said, Jack, can you tell me how my friend is doing? His friend was on the retreat. And Jack's, Jack said, oh, your friend's doing really well. And so the cook was rather happy to hear this and said, oh, what about my other friend? How are they doing? Actually, yeah, they're doing very well as t- also. And another staff member in the room at the time overhearing the conversation asks about their friend who's on the retreat. And Jack says, yeah, your friend's doing very well also. And so the, uh, so the, the, first, the, the cook sort of starting to wonder says, so Jack, what do you mean by doing very well? <laughs> and Jack responded, he said, oh, they're still here. <laughs> And in case you've been wondering how you're doing, (laughs) I think it answers it. Have you noticed yourself in any way evaluating or measuring something in your practice today? Sitting there saying, oh, well, you know, getting a bit of concentration now and then, but it's not that good. Not as good as it should be. Five days. God, come on. Could be better than that. You know, have you, have, has your mind done anything like that today? Yeah. Or we're in the loving kindness meditation and sort of it's kind of dull or we're kind of tight. We're not filled with boundless waves of you know, luminous, glowing warmth that's obviously sort of spreading out and filling the universe. Just more like, hmm, oh yeah. And we sometimes start to get into the evaluation and the judgment of that. What if we weren't doing that. What would it be like, I wonder? I mean, for starters, it doesn't make a lot of sense. We tend to pick out particular elements of our experience that we can measure and use them to measure ourselves. So, sort of how long or how many breaths we can stay present for is a classic one that we tend to evaluate. You know, some someone comes into an interview sometimes and says, 
oh, you know, I can only manage to be present for about four or five breaths and then my mind is gone, you know, and really despondent, upset. Someone else will be listening, four or five breaths? you got four or five breaths? Wow! You know, it's just so totally relative. But it's something we can measure and, and we tend to pick that one particularly because that ability to be calm and focused seems to be what we're talking about. It's not actually all of what we're talking about by any means, but it's something that most practitioners tend to pick out of all the things we're talking about and think, oh, that's the thing you're supposed to do well here and you can measure and it's going to look good too. So, you know, it makes a good story how clear and focused and concentrated I could get. But equally as that, which is, of course, important and useful, we're equally here cultivating qualities of receptivity, of openness, of patience, of courage. And, in fact, those kind of qualities particularly are cultivated when our mind's a bit more all over the place and our experience is a bit less sort of organised and tidily lined up the way we thought it was going to be. And equally as important, but how do you measure openness? You know, I, I, it's, it's a qualitative thing. You can't measure it. You can know, yeah, it's a bit more than it was or a bit less than it was, but you can't really measure it. So we don't bother. We measure something that's easy to measure. And in that way, what happens, what's really easy for us is to feed into our habit and tendency of, of self-judgment. And coming out of that, then feeling this urge and this urgency to need to perform now, of course, there's some people, and they're probably relatively in the minority, whose tendency is more towards thinking, oh, wow, I'm doing really well, actually. You know, This is going great. Look at all these other guys, you know, losers. Sort of, here am I, just sort of flying away, and they're falling all over their cushions. You know, <laughs> The odd person has that kind of mental activity going on. And, of course, we hear it, and we can realise that, you know, that, well, that would be, you know, probably wouldn't give too much authority to that if we heard it. Um, and yet sometimes the other side of the picture, which is, wow, everybody else can do it, and not me, we somehow believe that. We somehow give that authority. Both of those views, both of those perspectives are somewhat divorced from the actuality. And yet they're strangely strangely compelling. Not so strangely, but in a way counterintuitively compelling to us. Because they, they give us a sense of who we are. They give us the hope that even if I'm not doing very well now, at least... If I can improve and figure out how to improve, then I'll be doing well. Then I'll feel okay. And so we're tied into the paradigm of success and failure, of a sense of okayness or value or goodness or wholesomeness being somehow dependent on the results we produce. And the way we translate this from our lives, where we are trying to produce results at work or in, you know... um, relationship situations and sort of turning up the way we're supposed to, doing what we're supposed to, we translate it very quickly and easily. In fact, so seamlessly we mostly don't even notice into meditation practice. And we're performing. We're performing at some level. And it's it's like we're a little bit under the whip as we perform. It's sort of like, because if we mess up the performance, we're in trouble in a certain way. I mean, work periods. Often have conversations and interviews with regard to work periods. And how scary it is to think of not getting it done, or getting it done perfectly, or getting it done to the standard which we think everyone else must expect us to do it. 
And the amount of pressure and tension. I mean, it's a relatively friendly place here. I haven't, you know, haven't heard of any of the coordinators running around with a stick attacking anybody who didn't finish their work period. And yet sometimes it feels like I'm going to be really in big trouble if I don't do it, if I haven't performed. And the amount of fear and anxiety, unquestioned often, that runs through our system in those conditions, in those situations, is, is both deeply painful and also something we need to, to consider, to reflect on, to attend to. Because whether it be the meditation or the work period or even just the way we're telling ourselves a story about how well we did or didn't do in order to inform our friends and family when we go home, and we've already written the script of what we can tell them, ah, oh, you know, flew through it, no problems, you know, got a A star star. You know, maybe we're writing that story. It's more likely we're sort of hoping to scrape a C, you know, in the story we're telling. And that that sense of, it keeps us really busy. We can never stop. No matter how much success we ever attain in our life or in our meditation, when it's coming or when it's being sought within the framework of this attempt to make ourselves feel okay about ourselves, we'll never ever get there. We'll never be able to rest because we're only ever going to feel as okay as the next experience and whether that experience fulfills our criteria. And some of them will. And some of them won't. And that's for sure. Some of them will fill that criteria and will be able to look good. And some of them won't. And we won't be able to look good in those terms. And has anyone's life been different than that? I'd be surprised. I guess it's possible. And to see that, to really think or to reflect on that. Ah, wow. Yeah. And how does that play out here? When we make the meditation into something to do, something to perform at, that we're measuring and evaluating ourselves by, then what we very subtly do is we extract the whole sense of self that is separate and imagined or imagines itself to be separate and disconnected from life and we place it outside the meditation as if it's separate and disconnected from that and doing it makes it into something that we're doing and yet ultimately it can't be something we're doing ultimately it's something that we are which we need to understand There's a poster we used to have up at the old Gaia house that sometimes gets reprinted on the cover of the of the uh, the newsletter or the, occasionally I think the program maybe once, which is one of those you know lists like you have in good organised um, offices which say things to do today. And number one, inhale. Number two, exhale. Number inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale. It's like important things to do today. And you know, interestingly, most of us, we can do that. We can inhale, exhale. We can do that. It doesn't say you also have to be aware of it. I mean, that if that becomes the doing, then it's not the point. The doing in that is just, ah, oh yeah, that happens. Breathing happens. So what shifts for you when we start 
turning towards looking at experience as something that happens. Not that we are uninvolved with it, but that we're not making it happen and therefore aren't really in a position to use what happens as some way of either putting ourselves down or propping ourselves up. I mean, trying to make it happen is frustrating and disheartening. Pretty much everyone has to go through this in meditation, I'm afraid. So don't feel bad if you have. It's okay. It doesn't mean you've done it wrong. In fact, it's just perfect. Because that's what happens. We do in meditation pretty much what we do anywhere else. But in meditation, we have the opportunity to begin to see it. To see what we're doing. And see whether it really is useful, whether it works, whether that's what we want to keep doing now that we've become aware that we're doing that. That we're engaging in that way. So part of why we find it hard to let go of the sense of doing, it's, it's also very much involved with a sense of being in control. Like if I know what to do and I've got a sense of what it's going to look like if I've done well and succeeded and what it will look like if I haven't. Then whether or not we're succeeding or failing in that, whether or not we're getting to feel good about this or we're feeling really miserable about it, at some level, what we're getting a sense of is that we're in control. That somehow there's a security associated with being in that process for it. Or at least the illusion, the appearance of a security that we can be very deeply attached to. That feels like it would be more than maybe we're willing to consider letting go of. We can't do it here because we can't, with our mind and with our intellect, get from the uncertainty and the contingent, dependent nature of experience. We can't get from that to a place of certainty. It's just not possible. And so there's a, there's a quality or there's a way in which we feel slightly out of control, like things are uncertain. We're exposed to that reality. And there's, there's not much of a sense of knowing or being able to somehow get it together when we start to contact, when we start to touch this place, this dimension of our experience. <coughs> and so the idea, the prospect, the, even the invitation to simply be well, one part of us thinks, mm, yes, please. Another part of us goes, no, thank you. Because it would involve having to let go of the sense, the illusion of control, the sense of determination that we cling to. And it's not to say we don't have profound and remarkable influence in how our life and how our practice and how our meditation unfolds. But it's very different from that sense of being able to somehow control it and make it happen the way we think it should or we want it to. We fear being out of control, and yet we're already not in control. It's already that way for us. And if we can see that, we realize that, oh, actually, it's not that bad. Because this is what it is. It's not something that's going to happen if I let go of the illusion of control. It's what's happening anyway that I'm somehow trying to preserve by maintaining the illusion of being in control, even though I'm not. 
It's like this is what it's like already. And it's remarkable. It's remarkable what's going on. Just taking it back to the kind of the, the primary process of cultivation and development we could say with regard to this practice is being present, being awake, reconnecting with where we are, with what's actually happening, noticing of course that the mind gets drawn and pulled away to other things and sometimes lost therein for minutes, days, you know. One person once uh, was in the middle of a retreat and uh, reported to the teacher some days after the retreat that they uh, somehow got lost in a train of thought that um, they didn't quite notice until they realised they were in their car driving through Plymouth on the way home. And that was a, you know, that was more than just a, a brief drift from the cushion. And yet, in our life, it can happen all the time. You know, we kind of gone. And yet, even that person noticed at some point, huh? Look what's happened. I'm in Plymouth. Wow, amazing. And, you know, how is it that we realize that we're lost? Have you wondered about that at all? How is it that you wonder, that, sorry, that you realize that you're lost? Because when you're lost, actually, when, you're uncon- when we're unconscious, when I'm unconscious, I don't know I'm unconscious. That's the definition of it. I don't know that I'm lost. It's actually not a problem while I'm lost. The, the fact of the being lost isn't a problem. I mean, where I'm lost might not be fun. Sometimes it is. But it's only in the moment when we realize that we're lost that we see that fact. And in that moment, we're not lost anymore because we're aware of what's happening, which is that I'm here and my mind has just spent the last few moments, minutes, hours, years out there. And it's like, ah, oh. But... The fact that I wasn't there consciously and I didn't know that I was lost means I couldn't have done that thing of coming back. I couldn't have made it happen that suddenly I became aware. How could I? I wasn't there. I didn't know what was going on. It's like suddenly there's this dimness, this lostness, this foggy darkness, you could say, and then suddenly the light comes on. And we see, ah, I'm here. Wow. Now we didn't do that, did we? And yet that's amazing. It's remarkable. It happens. And of course it doesn't happen independent from our intentionality to see how and to what degree we can be present. And from our supporting that intentionality by when we realise that we're lost, not just saying, well, that was a nice fantasy, I think we'll go back to it, but saying, oh, no, my intention is to be present, coming back to the body, coming back to the breath opening to what's here right now in our experience. So that intentionality supports the process. It's certainly crucial for it. But we can't say that it makes it happen. We don't do the most essential piece of this process. It happens and we realise it. We recognise it. We go, ah, wow, back. So in that we could quite usefully, I mean, it's easier to sort of, oh no, you know, Despair, look how bad my meditation is, how long I've been lost. That's one view. It's not actually that useful. We could equally say, oh wow, how amazing. This quality of knowing, presence, awareness comes back by itself. And it's here, right now.
So, do you find yourself carrying some expectations of where you should have got to by now, at the end of day five of the retreat? Have you noticed yourself measuring up against them and wondering, you know, how you're doing, or concluding how you're doing, more likely? What would it be if you didn't really know? In terms of that measuring, in terms of that comparing, in terms of that evaluating your performance here. What might that offer to you? What might drop away? I think someone said in one of the interviews today that the possibility of not knowing how they were doing here felt like a really big relief. And it is, it's like a weight drops off us when we stop subscribing, when we with when we choose not to subscribe to that particular ideology and viewpoint. And what that might mean, of course, is that sometimes we need to feel some of the feelings that evokes that aren't easy for us, that may feel painful, that may include feelings of, you know, if we're used to relying on performance to make us feel okay about ourselves, then we might have to feel some sense of not being okay. And yet, that's just a feeling. It doesn't mean you're not okay, it's just a feeling. And if we can see that and be with it, we don't have to identify with it or get rid of it. It's just, oh, it's unpleasant, it stays for a while, it doesn't determine who or what I am or what intrinsic worth I have. It just comes for a while and goes. And then we don't have to prevent ourselves encountering it by performing all the time or trying to prevent ourselves encountering it by trying to perform all the time. So as we practice this simple and yet challenging art of attentiveness, of openness, of wholehearted, unconditional engagement with our life, we are asked again and again to surrender to what is true, to what is actual, to what is real. And to do so involves taking a risk. Because we have to go outside of the territory that's familiar to us, that's comfortable in one sense, that's controllable, (coughs) at least in our imagination or how we think about it. We have to be willing to let go. And yet mostly we're not willing to let go unless there's some certainty for us, unless we know what we're letting go into. And this is not easy. This is also not something we can do. But reflecting on seeing the process, we can start to support that potential for letting go. And in terms of how that tends to work for us, there's a rather nice story of a man who was walking one day on on a high clifftop and in a moment of distractedness went too close to the edge and um, stumbled and fell. And falling down this like 100 metre, 100 yard cliff, caught his hands on a branch sticking out of the cliff halfway down and just 
<sighs> looking up, long way up, looking down, long way down. And despite being a lifelong atheist, he says, oh my God. And then he thought, God, God, ah, uh, God, because he couldn't think of any other solutions. God, if you're out there, if you save me, I'll believe in you. And he almost lets go of the branches. This shockingly loud voice rumbles from the clouds. That's what they all say. (laughs) But he holds on, he holds on. He says, no, God, God, if you save me, I'll believe in you. I'll have faith in you. I'll tell everyone about your, your existence. Yeah, I've heard it before. When they're in trouble, they all say that. And then afterwards, they go about their ordinary ways. No, 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 I feel this deep faith within me, God. It's, it's, it's strong, it's clear. This is unshakable. I, I trust you, I believe in you. I know that you can save me. And God said, or the voice says, this loud rumbling voice says, okay, I will save you. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. I will save you. You have faith in me. Yes, I have faith in you. Thank you, thank you. I will save you. Let go of the branch. Let go of the branch? Do you think I'm crazy? Sometimes the voice within our heart isn't a loud rumbling voice from the clouds. It's a quiet voice. It's a gentle voice. But it speaks to us of that letting go, that willingness to go beyond what we know, what is familiar, to step out of the territory of performance, of doing, of measuring, of succeeding, of attaining, and to see where we might discover ourselves to be if we're not always orienting towards that, if we're not always inclining towards that. Because so far as we are, we're always framing and reconstituting and rebuilding the sense of egoic separateness and the suffering and the dislocation and the disconnection and the profound dis-ease that goes with that. They are inextricable that sense of egoic separateness, apartness, and the sense of unease are totally woven in together. And so we're asked to explore what it means to be. To not give weight to our habitual measuring, evaluating, comparing and the conclusions of success and failure that go with it. To be unsure as to where we are in that regard. Just leaving the question open. We don't need to know. If we can trust that where we are is where we need to be, because this is where our life has brought us. And yet, (coughs) 
so strongly the sense comes of I'm doing this, I'm making it happen. The way we keep taking ownership of it. And for me, I find a useful image is as if we went to a circus and some remarkable performance is put on for us, some skilled gymnasts on the flying trapeze, acrobats of highest caliber, do some you know, dazzling sort of performance. And then afterwards, a clown walks out with big floppy shoes and a nose and all that and sort of going, it was me. You see that? It was me. And we'd probably look at them and think, hmm, yes, maybe, but I'm not sure that was you. It looked like someone else. And then something else comes, you know, all the different things that go on in the circus. And after every performance, this clown comes out and says, it was me. It was me. I did that. That was great, wasn't it? And at some point we realize, well, this clown seems to think that it did all those things, but actually it's one of the performances. It's actually quite amusing when we see it that way. It's like, oh, oh well. Of course, it would be really painful for the clown if it actually tried to get up into the flying trapeze and do the performance, because then it would probably really hurt itself. And this we sometimes do. But we're not obliged to. We can start to see that that whole sense of evaluative and measurement-oriented relating to things we do or things that take place, things that arise, well, it, of course, needs to be done in certain ways and aspects of worldly life in order to function and do things that have to be done. Sure, of course, it has its place in that level. At a deeper level, it doesn't have any ultimate basis for referring or for us to refer to as defining who or what we are or the value that we can ascribe to ourselves. I mean, how would it be if we were to observe as things take place that they've just happened? Yeah, some mindfulness has arisen. Wow. Some confusion has arisen. Hmm. Right now there's a sense of calm and peace. Yeah, look, that's what's happening. In a little while, it'll be something else. Rather than I am or I did this, I produced this. And the consequent effort to figure out how did I do that and how can I do it again? Or how did I do it and how can I make sure I never do it again? Which is so much of our mental proliferation. It's like, ah, look, this is what's happening. And there's this capacity to know it. To be right here in the midst of it. There's profound and unshakable okayness in the simple fact of being. Just this. Just as we are. In not moving out of this place into some attempt to address a historical feeling. Now, feelings that come out of our history need to be met with compassion and kindness, not to be judged or rejected. But if we act on them, they inevitably get stronger, even if we think we're acting on them to somehow try and reduce them or dissolve them. They inevitably get stronger because when we act on them, we're telling them it's real. 
or giving them authority. And so, allowing what's here, what comes, what is, but seeing that as we become more and more fully present, and I think in the group it was mentioned to me, I might have said this morning that we might have felt like we've landed, and I said, well, I better edit my uh, language there, because landed suggests something that's finished, as opposed to, I think more likely we're feeling that we're landing. We're in a process of landing. There's no final landed. But we start to have a sense of that landing, of deepening, of feeling the experience more subtle, more more malleable, more that we can actually start to see into what's going on. We start to recognize what's pulling and pushing within us. And that we start to find that there's a natural response also that comes with kindness and with care to respond to it. That we can start to listen to. That we can start to recognize is not coming from the reactivity. Is not coming from the sense of deficiency or the needing to fix ourselves. But that is actually coming from something deeper and more authentic that profoundly cares for our life. Mary Oliver writes of this in the poem The Journey. She says, One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, Mend my life! Each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations. Though their melancholy was terrible, It was already late, enough, and a wild night, and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. Learning to listen to that deeper voice of heartfelt wisdom that speaks to us quietly and yet clearly as we learn how to listen to it and as we learn that much of what we have otherwise been listening to is not speaking from a place of truth but from a place of history. As we start to see and recognize and know the truth of that for ourselves it becomes clear that What we're doing here, we could say, is learning to not do all the things that entangle and obscure us. That it's not like this is something that's being suggested in terms of being is not passive. Non-doing is not without its activity. But the orientation of it is profoundly different. Profoundly different. It requires an immense effort, in fact, 
to not always be carried away by our habits and reactivity. It requires an immense courage to face the unknown and the unknowable, to open out of our familiar, tight, but somewhat, well not somewhat, but sort of familiar in a comforting and yet suffocating way, we experience the familiarity of the known, of the sense of control and security. And to step out into life, step out, allow ourselves to open out into life. There's a haiku goes only trust don't the leaves flutter down just like this only trust don't the leaves flutter down just like this And another haiku. Sitting quietly, doing nothing. Spring comes and the grass grows by itself. Sitting quietly, doing nothing. And the Dharma unfolds by itself. Can we learn to trust in this? Can we learn to trust in this simple, actual potentiality of wakefulness that we are exploring? Seeing that this wakefulness that we are exploring is pointing us to the depth of our human potential for awakening as we enter more fully into this wakefulness. The Dharma unfolds towards awakening. And, you know, the Buddha once said of this path and this practice, he said, you know, if it wasn't possible to awaken, I wouldn't ask you to do this. But it is possible, and so I do ask you. Trusting this body is held by the earth as it is. It rests upon it. This life is held by our breath. Each breath holds our life. We don't have to. It's held for us. That's not our job. Our job is, if we have a job here, to be really interested, to be really open 
to what it means to be just this, right now, right here. How does water get back to the ocean? Perhaps we could understand that it's the nature of water to flow. And it's the nature of the ocean to be flowed or flown. Mm. It's the nature of the ocean for water to flow towards it. We explain that with interesting words like gravity, but uh, that's just a word we made up to describe something that happens. We don't really know why it works that way. We just know that it works that way. Likewise, in terms of our practice, we can't necessarily say why it works that way. But if we look at it, we start to see that it works that way. And we don't need to know why. We can call it gravity in the case of water. We can call it grace in our spiritual practice. But those are words that may or may not have some meaning for us. What's more important is that it happens that we can see this, that we can know this. And that the practice of of being, of relinquishing that doingness, the practice of non-being is simply the return to the natural condition that all the doing obscures. It's not the creation of something that was absent, but simply the rediscovery of that which was overlooked. And all of our doing doesn't get us any closer. However, fortunately, it equally does not take us any further away. And so we come back again and again to the very simple, exquisitely simple invitation to be right here in the midst of this. Just as it is. Just as you are. Ryokan says, Say uh, a Zen monk and poet in the, in the Middle Ages. He says, Do you want to know what has been in my heart since before the beginning of time? Just this. Just this.
So may we all in our practice and in our lives come to rest in the simplicity of being. To deeply trust the okayness of that which we are. And to know in our hearts unshakably the truth of life that is awake, present, alive and always right here, right now for our own liberation for the liberation of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.